Father, um, today, first of all, when we come here this morning, God, we realize that you're our Father, that you have created each and every one of us. And thank you for that, God. You're perfect to us. You treat us always in good ways, and you have our best interests in mind. Thank you for that, Lord. And also, God, uh, as we're in the church family, Lord, we see that uh, you've put people around us in our lives, people that are father figures, Lord, even if they're not our biological father. And um, God, even on my behalf, uh, my dad's gone now, but uh, I have the friends that you've put in the church family here to um, help fill that role. I'm thankful for that. So God, uh, if there's people that are needing good relationships and things, Lord, use your church uh, to help them in that. And we see that happening so much. And uh, God, thank you for the the fathers that you have given to us and um, the young men that we saw up here with their children. Lord, uh, what a cool thing that is. And um, so... As a church family, we just uh, say thank you for all these things and open our ears and our hearts this morning as Phil's going to talk to us uh, from your word and help us, Lord. We look forward to that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Dean. In the two weeks that we were gone, Tina and I drove 5,500 miles. should have been 5,100, but when we got to Texas, she and... Katie believed that we were really close to Waco and therefore we should drive from where we were at down to see Chip and Joanna Gaines's ministry, if you could call it that, in Waco, Texas. And I thought, well, sure, it's only 200 miles, 400 round trip. So off we went and we drove down to Waco. So what should have been 5,100 turned into 55. And those 5,500 miles, we stopped in Kansas, we stopped in Colorado, we stopped, of course, in Texas. And and in Montana. So a lot of different stops along the way. One of those was in Kansas City where my dad lives. When we stop and visit with him, there's always another place that we have to go when we're in the Kansas City metro area. It's a wonderful, wonderful Christian bookstore that's about a mile and a half from his house. They specialize in clearance books. Tina and I are both book junkies, so it's one of our favorite places to go. Tragically, we had the pickup with us this time. So that meant when we were in a clearance bookstore, we could load up. And load up we did. They sell new books for a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. They also sell full price retail new release books. We never look at those. We just go directly to the clearance book area. And this time we were not disappointed. We loaded up and brought a bunch home. At the top of our pile at one point was a book written by a lady named Jill Donovan. I just picked it up and started reading and got quite intrigued. Jill in her book is just telling her own story. That's really all she's doing. And it is quite an intriguing story. I want you to hear some of it this morning. It seemed to fit perfectly with the sermon series that we were going into this summer. Always amazes me how God lines things up that way. And that's exactly what he did. And hopefully you'll understand why. Because this was written by a lady, I want you to hear it from a lady's voice. So Tina's going to come and read some portions for you from Jill's book. I believed I was meant to be a gymnast. From the age of nine, going for the gold medal was always in the forefront of my mind. 
Nadia Kamenichi and Olga Corbett kept the dream alive by smiling at me daily from my bedroom wall. I believe there would someday be a big poster of me hanging on my wall next to theirs, and the three of us would be exchanging triumphant smiles. My training schedule was rigorous. You'd find me practicing at the gym four afternoons a week after school, in addition to countless hours spent practicing outside of the gym. I practiced my round-off in school hallways when no one was looking, and whenever I was watching innocuous TV shows at home, you'd catch me sitting in a butterfly stretch position to help my splits. I dreamed about winning and could almost hear the crowd roaring as I completed each gymnastic move. In my dream, I could audibly hear my heart beating, followed by great relief as I finished at the top of each event. No amount of practice, no amount of time required, and no pain was too great to keep me from persevering. I was determined to compete in the Olympics. Having been selected for the competitive gymnastic team after my first and only tryout, solidified the idea I was on the path, one step closer to my ultimate dream. I lived, breathed, and loved everything that had to do with my passion. This was true even on the most frustrating days of polishing my routines. Then came a rude awakening in the form of crushing news. I call it rude because at the time it felt plain rude. The devastating news came on the heels of a grueling practice while I was packing my gym bag. My coach, Eric, pulled me to the side. Jill, I am going to level with you. Ever the optimist, I was sure he was going to promote me to the next team level. He went on, Someone needs to tell you the truth before you continue to spend more time and money on something in which you have no future. Have you ever had a moment in time so life-changing that you remember your outfit and who was standing around? In my case, I recall experiencing tunnel vision with a low hum in my head. I can still feel the raw emotions as if it were yesterday. It was 1979, a Thursday afternoon. At first, I couldn't hear Eric's words. It was as if he were talking through the ever-fuzzy intercom at school. The coach stopped and asked if I was listening. I swallowed back my tears and nodded yes. He went on to say, You simply do not have what it takes to make it to a higher-level team. Your flexibility and techniques have recently plateaued, and I just haven't seen the type of improvement I need to see at this stage. I do not see the possibility of the necessary improvement at this point. He ended our chat with a pat on my back, a smile, and a suggestion. Consider excelling in another activity that may help when applying for a college scholarship down the road. It's never too soon to think about that. College? I was stunned when he used that word. I was going straight to the Olympics. My mind was racing. I knew all of this was just a big misunderstanding. My thoughts were, okay, so technique and flexibility are my weak points. Aren't there flexibility vitamins I can take to help? That seems logical. Or maybe he really meant to have this conversation with Julie. He probably mixed us up because we both have short hair and our names start with a J. And no future, he said. Did I hear him correctly? Wait just a minute, Eric. There is no way you are squashing my dream right here, right now. I hope you're catching all of the high points of Jill's story. This is really something. From the time she was born, literally from the time she was born, she seemed destined to be on a track for the Olympics in gymnastics. Her parents more than likely cultivated that within her. 
In her eighth year of life, she auditioned for an Olympic-bound gymnastics team, and after just one tryout, she was selected. It was determined that she was good enough. So for a year, better part of 12 months, she poured herself into that until the coach called her aside and dashed all of her hopes and dreams. Before she turned 10 years old, all of her dreams were turned upside down. They were torn away from her. She was left reeling. She had a life plan by nine. Can you imagine? At nine years old, the only thing I could plan was what was for lunch and who was I playing with that afternoon. That's all that mattered. She had her entire life mapped out, and now it was destroyed. She could have been destroyed with it, but she wasn't. Even though her hopes had just been taken away from her, she did something really quite amazing at a 10-year-old stage of life. How she came up with this is beyond me. Listen to her next steps. It took a while for me to get over the initial heartbreak and to accept the kindly given truth. I was not meant to be an Olympic gymnast. I resolved that if I couldn't be an Olympian, that I'd attempt to do something different, new, and exciting every single year. Each January, my plan was to choose a novel activity to fully engage in for the next 12 months. I promised myself I'd jump on my new hobby horse and ride it for all it's worth and never jump off to ask myself, what if I fail? Though each new passion might not turn out to be my life's calling, at least I would give it a chance. Most likely, no awards would come my way. In addition, my interest in the hobby could possibly wane by year's end, but during that year, I'd commit to giving my all to the one new venture. I figured if I kept this plan going until age 40, there'd be some 30 new skills in my life's portfolio. Yes, I did the math. The idea of owning a new talent each year was heartening and fun for my almost 10-year-old mind. Jill of all trades, my new dream. (laughs) At 10 years old, she developed a 30-year plan. I couldn't have even come close to that. Her plan was simple. Every year, she would dive headlong into a new hobby, figure out how she could learn as much about it, practice as much as possible, and do her best to master that new hobby. And she did for 30 years, 30 new hobbies. It began with photography. Her first year into this, her parents bought her a camera. She carried that camera everywhere with her, taking pictures of everything and everyone. She wasn't just trying to build a photo album. Jill was trying to become the best photographer she could. That was at age 11. At age 12, after she had mastered photography, at least in her mind, she started taking art classes. She got into oils and watercolors, charcoal and sketching. She did as much as she could possibly do, took every class she could possibly take that had to do with art for one year. At the end of that year, she moved on to something else. Over the course of the next few years, she tried a lot of different things. When she got into high school, she decided to learn a new language, one that she had never spoken and never heard anyone else speak. So she went to the high school counselor, found the languages that they offered, and then chose a different path. She wanted to learn Russian. So she did. Her parents signed her up for linguistic classes to teach her the Russian language. For 12 months, she dove into it with all she had, 
became pretty good at it. It would actually lead her to a three-month stint in Russia after she graduated from high school. She said that was one of the best decisions she ever made. She formed lifelong friendships that still exist today with people in the nation of Russia. Loved what she did with that. After she came home, she decided that music was an area that she hadn't ventured into yet, so she wanted to give it a try. There was a 12-month run with a violin. She took as many lessons as she could and worked as hard as possible to master the violin. Once she had taken care of that, it was behind her. She picked up, of all things, the harmonica decided that she would spend 12 months learning how to play the harmonica. When she started into this music realm, she had decided that at the end of each 12-month run, she would hold a music recital for all of her friends and family and have them come and listen to everything that she had done. Well, that worked with the violin. But after 12 months with the harmonica, she realized that she had not scheduled the recital and she wasn't going to be able to pull it off. In fact, she was on an airplane in December of that year when that realization struck her, and she was somewhat disappointed about it because she had really looked forward to the recital. So at this particular stage in her life, she was a Christian, and she believed in prayer. So this is what Jill did. She looked around this airplane that she was sitting on and thought to herself, I have an audience right here. I can play for the folks on this airplane. But she was processing all the logical things that go with that. She thought, there's no way that they will hear me over the roar of the jet engines. So she prayed that God would give her an opportunity on that airplane to have her harmonica recital with all of these captive listeners. And the Lord responded. Right after she said amen, the captain came over the radio and said that there was a maintenance problem that they had to address before they would be able to leave. It would take about an hour and a half and they would be remaining on the tarmac. And she thought, there's my opening. So she jumped up with her harmonica in front of all of these people in December and started playing Christmas carols on the harmonica. Ha! As if flying is not miserable enough. There you have a harmonica concert going on inside an airplane. I can't imagine, but she pulled it off. After that, she took up tap dancing. She wanted to hold a recital for that as well, but found out that her instructor had already taken care of that for her. At the end of those 12 months, when it was time for the recital, the instructor came to her and said, there are three other students that will be performing with you at the recital. She didn't think much about it and got more and more excited that she was going to get to show her tap dancing skills to the world when she showed up that night for the performance, or actually I guess the dress rehearsal the night before. She found out that all of her fellow performers were under the age of 10 and she was 28 years old. So she was going to go out and tap dance with the, the three children that had been in tap classes as well. After that, she took up ice skating. She had never done that, but she thought with her gymnastic background, it would be a good fit. After the very first lesson, she realized that it wasn't, and she thought this is going to be a train wreck, but she was devoted to the idea of it. So for 12 months, she poured herself into learning how to ice skate. At the end of the year, there was a competition that her instructor had signed her up for. She had to choose her own music for her performance. She had chosen a Whitney Houston song. And just before she was ready to go out, this thought crossed her mind. If she could get to a microphone, she would actually tell all of these people that were in attendance this. Hello, my name is Jill. I've just learned how to ice skate. 
Tonight's performance will be held to a song by Whitney Houston, and it will be best appreciated if you will simply close your eyes and sway to the music. That was her plan. But she didn't do that. She went out and skated for all she was worth, and of course people applauded, and they thought she had done a great job, and that was the end of her ice skating career. In the midst of all of this, she did go to college, and she had to choose a path for her life. There were some doctors in her family, so she thought maybe medicine was the way to go, but she quickly discounted that. Then she looked at a couple of other options, engineering and so on, and she discounted those, choosing instead an educational track that would lead her to being a lawyer. So she went through law school, and after she graduated, she realized that she was an ice skating, tap dancing, harmonica playing attorney that could also do the splits on a balance beam, and that made her somewhat unique in nature and character. But she also realized that she was not passionate about this new career field. She wasn't passionate about the law. She didn't really want to be an attorney, but she was. So for a few years, she worked at that. And in those years, she started to do something kind of unique. She started making custom jewelry, giving it away, giving it to her friends, giving it to her family members. And that passion started to well up inside of her until she had an opportunity to go on the Oprah Winfrey show and talk about what she was doing, making custom jewelry and giving it away. Well, the part that had captured Oprah's attention was the fact that Jill's whole process of giving away her jewelry began when she was a little girl. Her mother had a gift closet in the home where she re-gifted things. That's exactly what she did. She re-gifted things. You would give her a present, she would smile and say, thank you so much, put it in the gift closet, and then when her children needed a gift for a birthday party, Christmas party, whatever it was, she would send them to the gift closet where they would open it up, take out something, and go give it to whoever they were giving it to. She said, you know, eight-year-old girls don't love candles, but she was giving them candles, different things that came out of the gift closet. That's what Oprah was most intrigued about. Unbeknownst to Jill, when she went on the show, Oprah and the other ladies that were interviewing her chose to mock her for that. And in fact, they opened it up to social media to respond to what they thought about how that had begun, the idea of the re-gifting or the gift closet, and she got crucified on national television. Absolutely crucified. Sucked all the wind out of her sails for just a little bit, but you already know some of the nature and the character of Jill Donovan. She chose to power through that. And she continued making custom jewelry until it has become a national phenomenon. And she has showrooms around the nation. The entire thing built on the premise of you buy one piece of jewelry for yourself and you buy a second piece to give away. Many of these pieces have scripture engraved on them. She's taken it up a whole other notch and said you buy this for yourself and you wear it for a while until you come in contact with somebody that needs the message that is inscribed on that jewelry and then you give it away. It's a whole premise of generosity, living generously. You'll see those words right above my head now. I had decided back in the spring that we were going to come into this sermon series this summer titled Living Generously, and then I grabbed hold of Jill Donovan's book, and it just seemed to fit right with it. Jill's story sets the stage for everything that we need to explore today on the idea of living generously and how we develop a passion for that. There are certain lessons from Jill's story that we can extrapolate out if we're willing to. Things like this. Have you found something that you are really passionate about or are you still just dabbling in all kinds of different things? 
Have you discovered a real passion at this point in your life? Are you allowing some of the failures of your past to determine your present and keep you from moving into your future? Is that one of the issues that you deal with? Or maybe this is one of them. Jill has, for the last 10 years, since she turned 40, for the last 10 years, she has decided to face one challenge every year, the exact same challenge. It is one that is attached to her greatest fear, which happens to be of heights. So she found a place around where she lives that has a 30-foot pole that you can come and climb, tethered to a rope. You climb the 30-foot pole, stand on the top of it with both feet on the top of this 30-foot pole, and then jump off of it. She is terrified of heights. But for 10 years, she has chosen to confront that fear so that nothing will hold her back. So every year she climbs the pole, her hands shaking, her feet shaking. But she gets to the top, puts both feet on the top of the pole, and then she jumps off. So one of the lessons that we can extrapolate out of her story is this. Have you confronted your fears or are your fears holding you back from your passions? Moving into the things that you need to do. And the reason I want you to look at all of those questions, even as we take them from Jill's story, is this. If we are going to learn how to live generously within the kingdom of God, we have to face those types of questions. We have to determine what our passion is. We have to move past the failures of our past into our present so that we can move into the future that God has for us. And we have to confront our fears. And I want to show you scripturally how to do that. We're going to look at the most unique of places today. If you brought your Bible with you, open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 39. Love to hear all those Bibles opening. Listen closely. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now around Christmas time every year, we spend a lot of time and effort in studying the Christmas story. We hear about Joseph and Mary. We hear about angels and shepherds. We hear about the animals and the manger. And we go through stars and all the other things, the gifts of the wise men, that come together to make the Christmas story what it is. So I don't want us to spend a lot of time with that. Instead, I want us to look at something that Luke doesn't really grab hold of, but he leaves us wondering just a bit, just a bit about this. And Matthew fills in the blanks for us. Here are the blanks. Matthew would give you all of this. If you want to go to his gospel, you can read it for yourself. When Jesus was born, Herod found out through the wise men that the king of the Jews had been born, another king in his kingdom. And Herod was not happy about it, not at all. So Herod decided to try to do something to get this other person that might carry the title king out of his way. When he was unable to find Jesus on his own, King Herod passed an edict that said all of the male children under two years of age were to be killed. If they were in the nation of Israel, if they were in his kingdom, they were to be wiped out. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the words of an angel, Joseph... Jesus' father knew that he was to flee out of Israel. He was to go south into the land of Egypt and remain there until the Lord told him to come back. And that's exactly what Joseph did, which, by the way, the gifts that were given by the wise men funded that expedition. It's kind of interesting when you think about the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh and the role that they played in Jesus' life. They took care of their time 
in Egypt. Scholars debate over and over and over again how long they were out of the country. Some would say two years, some would say four years, some say somewhere in between. It really doesn't matter and we don't know for sure. But we know that Joseph, Mary, and their newborn baby were out of Israel for a period of time until the Lord told them to come back. And when God told Joseph that it was time to return to Israel, when he came back, he did something that is really quite amazing. He chose to return not to Jerusalem, the place that would have made the most sense for Jesus. He chose not to return to Bethlehem, the place where Jesus had been born and where Joseph's people were from. He chose instead to go to Nazareth in the northern part of the kingdom, in a region known as Galilee. He went to this little tiny town that more than likely he and Mary had lived in before they had gone off to Egypt. It was more than likely their home and where they would have returned to from Bethlehem. However, Joseph had a business there before they had gone to the census, and now he'd been gone for a number of years. That business would not have amounted to anything. But he chose to go back to Nazareth. The really intriguing part of that choice is this. Nazareth was an often overlooked, oftentimes despised, tiny little barely-on-the-map community. And that's where Joseph went back to. It was a place that some folks, when they heard about Nazareth, would have just rolled their eyes and said, Oh, Nazareth, might have said, Oh my gosh, Texas, it's really hot there. That type of thing. Now, interestingly enough, for me, if I was choosing a place to live in Israel, I'd go to Nazareth in a heartbeat. It's in the northern part of the kingdom, in the hill country. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. It is surrounded by agricultural lands as opposed to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's basically a desert. Everything that surrounds it is a desert terrain. So if I have the choice of Jerusalem or Nazareth, I really love the region of Galilee. That's where I would have gone. But during those days and even today, that is not the most common popular choice. And Nazareth would become one of the defining aspects of Jesus' life. Though as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John you will not one time hear Jesus self-identify as Jesus of Nazareth. That doesn't happen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You will seldom, though it does happen, hear the disciples refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you hear that, it is coming from people that know very little about who Jesus is. Jesus was a common name. It is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name, Joshua. So Jesus was a common name that required another way of helping people understand who you were talking about. So a lot of times, where they were from would get attached to their name. Jesus of Bethlehem, Jesus of Cana, Jesus of Bethany, or in this particular case, speaking of our Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he lived. That was his childhood home in Israel. So people that didn't know much about him would refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. So would the demons. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the demonic referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth. It was a mocking term. False teachers would refer to him the same way as Jesus of Nazareth. Then when the soldiers came with Judas to arrest him, they would ask if anybody knew Jesus of Nazareth. 
That's how they would refer to him. Pilate himself would nail that title on the cross above Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. It was a a term that just flowed off their tongues as if to say, this is disgusting. He is disgusting. That's how they were communicating it. Truly tragic. But once you get through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get into the book of Acts, you see a redemption of that term. And it's really, really kind of exciting when you see it. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter would preach in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He would heal people in the book of Acts in that same name, Jesus of Nazareth. By the time we get to Paul's preaching, we would hear Paul preaching salvation through Jesus of Nazareth. And in Acts chapter 22, Jesus himself would identify as Jesus of Nazareth. And it's this beautiful, subtle little picture of how God takes something from our past that may seem broken and he redeems it into something beautiful in the present. That's what God does for us. Jesus was raised in Nazareth. And God glorified it. God used it. God turned it into something beautiful. And the Lord still does the same thing. But we know very, very, very little about what happened during those years. There are some implications about what took place. It is implied that Jesus learned the trades that his father had perfected. He became a master carpenter. It is implied in Scripture that he ran his father's business after his dad died. That implication comes from things like this. When he hung on the cross, Jesus would say to the Apostle John, this is now your mother, speaking of Mary. You take care of her. He needed to make sure that she was going to be provided for because he had been doing that up to this point. For 30 years, he had either studied at his father's feet or he had ran his father's business. For the last three years, he had been perfecting his earthly ministry And now he was going to be gone. That's the implications of what we know about his time in Nazareth. There is one story, Luke records it for us, that gives us some greater insight into what was happening there. If you're still in Luke chapter 2, pick up with me in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now let's just take that last verse. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Listen to verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now that's part of what was happening while he was growing up in Nazareth. But there was something else taking place. A passion was growing within him. 
You have to remember that while he was in Nazareth as a teenager, he was both God and man. But some people would tell you he was more man than God during that time. And there's a lot of debate about that, whether it was equal or whether there was a, a growing process in his divinity. It's not my place to debate that today. It's not my place to even try to discuss that. People have to arrive wherever they're at, but you have to begin knowing that Jesus was both God and man. He was not man who became God. He was both God and man. We have to know that. But he was growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man while he was growing up in Nazareth. When he was 12 years old, he went to Jerusalem with his folks. Let's get into a little bit of Old Testament history real fast. It is commanded in the Old Testament all of the male Jews, the head of households, were to go to Jerusalem three times a year to present sacrifices before the Lord, participate in celebrations and traditions. Most of them could not afford to go three times a year. It was just economically impossible and too difficult in the travel. So they would go once a year. And given the choice, the majority of them would go during Passover. And given the opportunity, they would take their families with them, their entire family, extended family, everybody. They would all travel to Jerusalem with one another where they would celebrate and participate in the Passover. Pretty cool thing. When they would travel, the women and the children would lead the way. They would be at the front of the pack. The men and the younger men would follow along behind as if to say to the ladies, you set the pace. However fast you want to go, that's how fast we'll go. And it was not uncommon for the children to run back and forth from mom to dad, from aunt to uncle, from cousins. And they would be taken care of by everybody. And that's exactly what was happening after Joseph had said, now we've been to the Passover, let's head home. They all left and all the kids were doing what kids do, including 12-year-old Jesus, or so they thought. After they had traveled a full day's journey out of Jerusalem, Joseph went to set up camp, Mary was making dinner, and they realized that Jesus was nowhere to be found. They were one day out. It was nighttime, time to go to bed. Now that's not hard for me to understand at all because growing up in Wichita, Kansas, it was a common occurrence that we would leave the house when the sun came up and we didn't have to be home till dark, but when it was dark, we better be home. That's just the way mom and dad did it and it was cool. The entire neighborhood was our domain. A lot of you grew up the same way. We live in a different world today, but a lot of you grew up in the same way. And in fact, I'm curious, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It was daylight and you were out and about. So that's what was going on with Jesus. But now it's getting dark and he's nowhere to be found. So they have to turn around and make a day's journey back into Jerusalem to look for him. And you can be assured that they were looking under every rock and under every tree, afraid that something had happened to their son. When they got to Jerusalem, pay attention to this, they did not go directly to the temple they continued looking all day long because how unusual would it be for a 12-year-old boy to be in the temple? How unusual would it be for a 12-year-old boy to say, I am out here on my own. I am headed to church. It's probably not what they were thinking. So they looked everywhere else until finally there was nowhere else to look and they went to the temple and they found Jesus. The Bible says in several different translations that they were distressed while they were looking for him. That word distressed is the same one that is used other places in Scripture to talk about the pain of the lost souls of Hades. 
That was the type of pain they had inside of them. Every parent in this room can imagine that pain. Distressed for three days trying to find your child. And then they find him in the temple. Listening to the priest. Listening and teaching. Astonishing everyone. And then they walk up to him and Mary says, How could you do this to us? And don't you just love Jesus' response? It's verse 49. Listen to this. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What in the world's going on with you, Mom? I don't know what you're so worked up about. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I like the way the ESV says that. I like the way the NIV says that. I like the way the New American Standard Version captures that verse. But it's the King James that really captures it very, very well. Take a look at how the King James says that same verse. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Isn't that great? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? I'm willing to bet that nobody in this room has used the word wist in a while. It really just means, did you not know? What are you thinking? Why are you wondering? Wist ye not? Here's my challenge to you. Sometime over the course of this week, use that phrase. Maybe at work. If somebody comes up to you and they want to know what you're doing, just look at them and say, Wist ye not that I am doing what I'm supposed to? Or your neighbors come over and they say, Hey, how come you're mowing your yard that way? Wist ye not that I would mow like this? Whatever it is, just have fun with it. See what happens. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? When we look at that, there are two lessons that we really need to grab hold of, and they are attached to language. The first one comes from Jesus' use of the word, not wist, but must. I must be about my Father's business. I want you to think about what that really means. Must is a non-negotiable term. Must says there are no other options. I'm at a point in my life at 12 years old where I must be right here. It's non-negotiable. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is how I have been defined. This is the purpose and the passion within me. This is the must of my life. Have you ever thought about the musts of your life? What those might be? The non-negotiables of your life? When Tina and I were dating, I was in Bible college and I knew the course of my life. I knew that I was going to be going into ministry. And so one of the conversations that we had very quickly sounded like this. I am going to be a minister. That's a non-negotiable. If you're not on board for that, then we probably need to go no further in this relationship because this is the must of my life. I cannot guarantee you that we're going to stay in the state of Kansas. I cannot guarantee you that we will be near our families. I cannot guarantee you that there won't be people that have great demands on my time and on my life. I cannot make any of those promises to you because this is the course that I'm on. I must do this. It is a non-negotiable, and if you're not with me, then we're not going to go any further. Thankfully, Tina said, hey, I'm 100% in, and she has proven that day after day, year after year for 30 years. She said, I'm with you. And that became her must. What are the musts of your life? The non-negotiables. If you want a, an interesting challenge this afternoon, sit down and make a list. What are the musts of your life? Well, I want you to take a look at what Jesus used to define the must of his life. I must be about my father's business. That's his must. I will be about my father's business. 
It was a choice that he made when he was 12 years old. Remember, some of those scholars said that he was not fully God at that point, not fully omniscient, knowing the way everything would unfold. And again, I'm not going to debate that. I have my own ideas on that. I believe that they're probably not right. I believe that he was fully God and man. He was fully omniscient at that. But still, when you look at the application of him at 12 years old, saying, I must be about my father's business, he had made a choice. And it is a choice that every believer has to make. Whose business are you going to be about? What business are you going to be about? Now, you don't have to just say, well, for a preacher, that's easy to say that being about your father's business is the must of your life. A preacher can say that as easily as a plumber. I'm going to be about my father's business. It's just that plumbing becomes the pulpit. A carpenter can say that the same way a missionary says that. A teacher can say that the same way a Bible college professor says that. A forester can say that the same way that any other believer that has chosen to be about their father's business has made that declaration. It is a choice. It is the must of my life. And when it becomes the must of your life to be about your father's business, a passion will flow from it. A passion will come out of it. And that passion will put you in a place where you will be able to live generously with the kingdom of God. You will be able to live generously not only within the kingdom of God, but with the kingdom of God. Doing everything that you can possibly do to give the gospel away. To make sure that other people hear the message of salvation. To make sure that they have the opportunity to know the Lord and Savior that you know. When you get to a place where the must of your life is your Father's business, that's your must, then living generously will be second nature. And I want to show you over the course of the next several weeks what that looks like. We're going to look at all kinds of different things. This is going to take a turn that you're not expecting. Some of you are thinking, living generously. Every time I hear the word generously, that must mean money. We're not talking about money. I'm going to show you how this applies to the passion of your life. There will be a point in there where we'll talk about finances, but that's just one point along the way. We're going to look at the whole of it, living generously. We're going to wrap up now, and in order to do that, I want to show you the definition of generously, just so it will give you something to think about. It is an intriguing definition, and when you apply it to the must of your life, you will see easily how passion flows from it. Take a look. Generously, a way that shows a readiness to give more of something than is necessary or expected. That's what we're going to be talking about. It's a great definition. I hope you'll be with us through this study because we're going to explore some crazy cool things. We really are. And God's Word is going to guide us through that. I want to invite you now, though, to stand and pray with me understanding that the Lord has been generous with your past to redeem it into your present. How you see that is up to you. Nathaniel would ask in the Gospel of John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he would meet Jesus and become one of his disciples. That's how the Lord redeems things. We can ask the same thing. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Jesus did. And he has changed our lives. If you have not experienced that change... We want you to know that you can. And today can be the day that you do. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, or at least Ray will. Let's pray together while the worship team comes. Father in heaven, 
when we begin to look at the must of our life, it becomes quite convicting. Because a lot of us have musts that have nothing to do with you. They're our business, not yours. But we also have the opportunity to change that, to look deeply at ourselves and decide what to do with your business and our life. And I pray that we will over the course of the coming weeks. I pray for some that they'll begin today asking whether they've even entered into your business and where they stand with you. And for some, Lord, I know that the answer will be quite convicting. So I'm asking in faith that today that changes. And I'm asking it in Jesus' name. Amen.